Good morning, Southbridge. Thank you for raising voices with us. And uh, I love that that song says, make a joyful noise. If you stand next to me singing, you know that's what's happening, noise. But it is in joy that we serve an incredible God and uh, get to worship him together. If you're a guest with us today, uh, thank you for worshiping with us uh, this morning. Maybe last week was your first week or today's your first time here. If you wouldn't mind, in your worship program, there's a little thing we call a connection card. If you just pull that out. Fill it out and turn it into the first time guest kiosk. We've got a gift for you. And uh, we also are going to give a gift to um, someone else as a result of you filling that out, a ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. And so that gives you an opportunity to be a part of what's happening here and uh, for us to be a part of what is going on in another ministry that does the same thing we do, is try to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change. So if you're a guest, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment and filling that out now, that would be uh, wonderful. And then also, uh, for those of you who are members, I want to give you a little heads up. You're going to get an email from us this week. Please don't spam it. <laughs> uh, don't. It's just not uh, just a random email that we're sending out. It's uh, Renewable Church Membership. You might remember last year we started a thing where we're going to renew our church membership uh, every year. One of the reasons why is because uh, we care how you're doing spiritually. We don't just care you know, how many people show up on Sunday morning or how much money is given and things that you can kind of count. Uh, we care how you're doing. And uh, one of the ways we think is the, the easiest way to figure that out is just to ask you. And so on an annual basis, what we desire to do is uh, just to make sure that uh, we're asking ourselves individually questions about uh, is the vision really what I'm trying to live out in my life, connecting people to Jesus for life change and the values that we have of encounter, embrace, and engaging our world. Are those really my personal values? And so we want you to reflect on that. We want to give you an opportunity for some self-examination. And we also just want to ask you, are you doing better spiritually than you were a year ago? If not, how can we help? And some of those kinds of questions. You're going to get a survey that comes with it. And the survey takes you about 20 or 30 minutes. So it's considerably shorter than it was last year. Uh, but I want to give you the heads up that that's coming this week. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, for views that are interested in possibly membership, uh, we're having a lunch today called Discovering Southbridge. Uh, I think we've got about five spots uh, left for that. And if you want to come, I'd love to have lunch with you. And uh, you go to the Connections kiosk, just tell them you're coming, whether you have any kids and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we'll make sure that we've got a spot for you. You get an advantage because you're in the first service. And so maybe the next service there'll be no spots. Who knows? Uh, but we're glad you're here today, and uh, we're going to continue in the series we were doing just before Easter. Last week we took a break. We are in the Gospel of Luke, but we had been in the book of Acts. Now the interesting thing is those go really well together because the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke wrote the book of Acts, and what happens in the book of Acts is really a continuation of what takes place after the resurrection. And so we're going to really pick up where we left off last week, even though uh, we took a break from the series. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll jump into the scriptures together. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, thanks for being a father to us. Um, so many of us uh, didn't have a great example of that, and we are thankful that you are a perfect father and that you care for us. And uh, for those of us who had fathers who did try to be an example of your love, we are, we are grateful for that. And um, Father, I just ask that you would allow us to sense your perfect love today, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal your glory through the scriptures as we open them up together, that you'd speak um, to our hearts, to our minds, um, to us physically, that we would tangibly um, apply the things that you say to us. And if there's a need for repentance, that we'd repent. If there's a need for encouragement, that you'd encourage. God, we know that it can be heavy uh, to carry one another's burdens, but not possible for us to carry them on our own. And so I thank you for the body of Christ and that we get to carry one another's burdens. I pray that you would have that happen this morning. I pray that you would do the things that you desire to do that I couldn't even guess in prayer. And will you speak to us as we open your word? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week was Easter, and we were in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, just FYI, Jesus is still risen, by the way. Uh, we can still celebrate the resurrection, even though it's not Easter Sunday. There are still implications for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and if you remember last week, we were talking about what he gives us. He gives us new life, and we were talking about all the new things. And maybe you remember, I started off talking about how uh, we have a fascination as a culture and a society with the new, and talked about the new things that happen in our society. Dorito tacos was one of the things that was mentioned. I actually went to Taco Bell this week. Call me a traditionalist. I did not get 
uh, Dorito taco or a Cool Ranch taco. My wife asked me when I got home, so don't ask me how many I ate. But I did get tacos while I was there and uh, was not pulled into that new thing. And some of you amen even in a couple of the services last week when I mentioned Cool Ranch tacos. The crazy thing for them was it was the best product they ever had. But they still felt the pressure to come up with something new. Now, they didn't call it new and improved. We've all been duped by new and improved before. And we talked about how in the Easter story, what was being offered to us was new life, but not new and improved life. It's not just that Jesus, when you trust him as your savior, that all of a sudden uh, you become a more moral version of you, or a more religious version of you, a cleaned up version of you, or whatever version of you that would be better than it was before that. You become a new person. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, new, new creation. The old is gone, new has come. Not an improved version, new has come. And, and huge phrase, by the way. Uh, last week, in every service we had, we had three services, we had multiple people trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so, that's a yeah, you can praise the Lord for that. You can, you can dance up in the aisle, and I'll keep preaching, okay? Just so you know. The, the Bible says all of heaven rejoices when somebody trusts Christ as their Savior. And so, however you want to express yourself, that's great. To think that something we do here actually impacts what's happening up there is incredible. But when one person trusts Christ, all of heaven rejoices. And so, heaven was partying on, on Sunday last week, and uh, Lord willing, from churches all around the Triangle, uh, some of you, you trusted Christ as Savior. And let me just say this. A few of you uh, didn't fill out your connection card. And if you did trust Christ as Savior last week, and maybe now you trust us more or, or whatever, if you'd let us know by checking on your connection card that you did that, that'd be a huge blessing to us. It'd be an encouragement for those who are praying for you. And uh, we want to continue to pray for you. We can pray for you by name if you fill that card out. And so please do that. Um, but let me ask you a new question this week. So let's say you have new life, which is a huge assumption, okay? So uh, just because you go to church or you know Bible answers, I'm not saying that's true. So if you don't, that's the most important thing you can ask yourself today is, is will I trust Christ as my Savior? Will I let him be Lord of my life? But if you've done that, I've got a new question for you. What does the new life look like? And so we can talk about having the new life, but what does the new life look like lived out? And does your life look that way? What does the new life, what should it look like, especially amongst other people? And that's what we're going to talk about today in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, the new life lived out. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 32 through 37. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And what we're looking at here is another summary passage. We've already seen one of these before. And if you remember the way the book of uh, Acts starts, it's Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he, he says this statement to Theophilus, a wealthy donor probably that he's writing to. And he says to him, Theophilus, in my former book, which is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Implied is he's continuing to work, but now he's doing it through you and through me, through the church. And what the book of Acts is, is a story of the church and how the church started and God's plan for the church. And if you remember, in Acts chapter 2, there was a summary passage of how life was going after 3,000 people began new life in Jesus Christ. And one day, 3,000 people came to Christ, and that's how the church started. And then these people start to live life together. And Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 through 47 tell us what that was like. And then we see in chapter 3 that God continued to change lives one at a time. It was impacting one person at a time and changing families and changing lives and changing homes and changing communities and changing cities and eventually changing the world. And then what happened was some persecution came and they had a prayer meeting and then in Acts chapter 4 we get our next summary passage. How's the church doing now? And look what it, has, what it says after some difficulties taking place, what's going on. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says this, All the believers, everyone, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace, mega grace, great grace was upon them all. 
There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And then an example in verses 36 and 37, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, that means son of encouragement, he had a nickname. What he did in verse 37 is he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. And what we see here is a picture of what the early church was like. After some persecution, after some difficult things happened, now there's over 5,000 of them. By the way, because we were told in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, there are now 5,000 men, so then plus women and children, there are over 5,000 people that are part of this church. And what we see here is that if any one of us visited this church, this is a church we want to be a part of. One, because it's the only option you had <laughs> at that point. Uh, but, but two, it's not because of their style of music, it's not because of their preaching, it's not because of their programs, it's not because of any of that stuff. There was just something about this church, and some of you know what it's like to church shop, to go looking for a church, whatever phrase you want to use for that, where you, you maybe moved to a new community, or you haven't been going to church for a while, you decided to go back, or whatever reason, you decide to look for a church, and you know how difficult that can be, because you can come up with your checklist, right? Like, they need to do these things, or have these things, and, and you can go to a church that has that, and it still just doesn't feel right, but when you find the right church, you, you know it. I was thinking about this week when, when Shannon and I, I don't know if you remember this or not, when we were looking for a church in Dallas, and we had lived in Dallas for a couple of years, and we were going to seminary there, and we were moving to another part of the city. The city is so big, we actually moved an hour away, <laughs> but we're in the same city. And uh, so we decided we were going to start looking for churches. We kind of made a list of the ones we were going to go to, and we had one church we weren't going to go to. And uh, we weren't going to go there. It was too big, and it had a nickname. I don't know if you remember that. And there were different things that we thought about it, and, and we thought we wouldn't go to church there. And I remember when we visited to go to church there, because <laughs> we'd gone to some of the other ones, and uh, it was just right. It was just like you, you, just, sent, you just knew. And, and we didn't, it wasn't because of the pastor. It wasn't because of the children's ministry. It wasn't because of the whatever programs they had. It wasn't because of the music. In fact, the music probably wouldn't be the style we'd naturally just pick. But we just sensed that God was at work there. And when you read this passage of Scripture, notice it doesn't say anything about many of the things that we make important. It doesn't say whether this was like the rock and roll church or the gospel singing church or whether it was the hymn church. It doesn't say any of that kind of stuff. It doesn't say, well, well you wouldn't like the preaching because even though it was Peter, uh, he spoke Greek. <laughs> so that probably wouldn't have gone over well for most of us. Uh, we, they didn't have, you know, Disney World for Christians for their children's ministry. But you would have wanted to have been a part of this church. They just had something about it. There was just God at work and, and you could sense it. And what was happening was there was a bunch of Christians that had received new life from Jesus Christ and now they were living out that new life. And what this passage gives us is some of the characteristics of that new life. Not all of the characteristics, not every characteristic the Bible gives us, but two of them. And the first one we see is that they had supernatural unity because new life is characterized by supernatural unity. Jump back up to verse 32, the first verse that I read. The very first part of it says, all, so without exception, all the believers were one in heart and mind. What does that mean? It's a Hebrew way of saying, it's a Hebrew idiom, it's a Hebrew saying that they had that was that they were totally and completely unified. The heart for the Hebrew thinker was the core of the person, the core of their passions, of their desires. You've maybe heard the verse from the Old Testament, guard your hearts above all else. It's the wellspring of life. Everything that flows in impacts what everything that flows out. The heart is central. It's the core of your will, of your desires. It says they were one in heart. Everyone was one in heart, in passion, in desire. And everyone was one in mind. Some of your translations say soul. They were so unified. It was complete unity. And so, how did this happen? And what must have been true about these people? Were they all the same? I mean, did they all just think the same? They all like the same sports. They all like the same team. You know, of course, right? We went on division amongst that. And we all had, they all like the same clothes, the same food, the same music, the same, all that stuff. 
Who was like the all-white church? Or was the all-African-American church? Or the all-Hispanic church? Or the all-Latino church? Or the all-Indian church? Or the all-Korean church? Or the all... No, it wasn't. But it was like all rock and roll church or all gospel music church or all hymn church. Now they didn't even know about any of those things at this point. Maybe it was that they all, what would you hope was true? Maybe it was the all Calvinist church. It was the all Arminian church. It was the all some pet doctrine church, right? In fact, if you look at the scriptures, you find this church is more diverse than anything we could imagine. In Acts chapter 2, we read about where all these people come from. In verses 9 through 11, these people didn't even all speak the same language. They didn't like the same kind of food. And in fact, they didn't like the same kind of sports team. They didn't even watch this. It's like you're talking about it's opening day and they're talking about cricket, okay? These people are from all over the world. Hey, look at where they're from. There's Parthians, Medes, Elamites. Where is that? Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. They've got three verses of just places they're from. That place, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, uh, Jews, converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. You got people from islands, you got people from inland, you got people from big places, you got people from small places, you got people from all over the place. And you think about our city, right? Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, Cary, Holly Springs, just call it, just call it all one, one place. We'll call it RDU. Think about the diversity we have in our place. We got people from India. We got people from Vietnam. I'm just thinking of people I met at church. You got people from Korea. You got people that uh, are from African American. They're African American. Got people from Africa. You got people, uh, they're Caucasian. Got people from Europe. Got people from all over the place. Come here. And then you think about socioeconomic. We got people that are the wealthiest of the wealthy. We got people that don't know where the next meal is. So we got people that have so much money. Like, think about this for a spe- second if you think about worldwide perspective. We have people that have so much money. They have to hire someone to tell them what to do with their money. Like they actually give people money to tell them what to do with their money. Think about that from like third world country perspective. You have, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like we have the wealthiest of the wealthy and then we have people that don't know where their next meal is coming from. And we've got one of the stats, it's a debated stat, uh, but say that per capita, that the triangle has more PhDs per capita than anywhere else in the United States. At the same time, there's people who dropped out of high school. Maybe there's people that dropped out of junior high. There's all kinds of education levels. There's all kinds of economic, all kinds of racial. Differences of thoughts and opinions don't even get started on that. Like if I ask you questions about what you like the most, we'll just we'll, we'll start a fight, right? And then there's male and there's female. And there's older and there's younger. And there's all kinds of stuff and you mix them all together. Now can you imagine for a moment all those people worshiping together and one heart and one mind completely and totally unified? That'd be supernatural unity and that's what's supposed to happen in the church see sometimes we forget what the church is supposed to be like because we come up with our list of things that we're looking for from the church and we start to treat the church like it's a mall a spiritual mall that we come and get our needs met from like that was what the church was designed for like it's just teach my family these things or do this or make me feel this way or i want to sing this kind of music or all that kind of stuff you don't find any of that stuff in the scripture And we forget what the scriptures teach us that the church is. And don't miss this. The church is God's primary way of revealing his glory to this world at this time. And and you see it throughout the Bible. After the resurrection, that's his primary means of demonstrating his glory to the world. If you don't believe me, that's what the scripture says. You read through the scriptures and one of the ways he does it is through showing diversity 
and unity at the same time. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks all about breaking down the barrier walls between Jews and Greeks, the Gentiles, that they would come together and they'd be able to worship together even though they're so different. In Galatians, you see there's no slaves, no free, not male, not female, all same at the cross. Doesn't mean they all thought the same. Doesn't mean they all didn't have the same skin color. They didn't speak the same languages. They didn't like the same kind of food. They didn't like the same kind of music, but they were brought together in Christ. And what does Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 say? It says, it was his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Jesus prays that through our unity, the world would see his glory. When he's praying to the Father, uh, the Lord's prayer, not the, our Father who art in heaven, but when the Lord prays for you and for me, John chapter 17, that's what he prays for. John chapter 17 and verse 20, he's praying to the Father. He's just prayed for his disciples, the, the apostles, the 11 guys that are going to be left. And then he prays for us. He says, my prayer is not just for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe. That's you and me. He says, they will believe in me through their message. What happens in the book of Acts? And look what he prays in verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Here's why. So that they would see your glory, just as you sent me incarnate. That was his primary way of communicating his glory to the people at that time was through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ raises, his primary way is through you and through me. And one of the primary ways that happens is through our unity. Does it mean we're all the same? Not at all. But think about God. The Trinity, that he's one, ontologically or in essence, his being, he's one. But the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. They're three distinct persons. They're not the same, but they're one. And we're supposed to reveal that by the way that we live with one another, and that's what was happening here. You'd want to be a part of this church. It says they were one in heart and mind. This is supernatural what's taking place. It wasn't that they all liked the same stuff. It wasn't that they all had the same preferences. It wasn't that they all wanted the, all the same things out of life. It wasn't that they had the same backgrounds. It wasn't any of that stuff. So how does it happen? You see, the very first part of that phrase says they were one in heart. They had a common love. And it was their love for Jesus Christ that superseded all that other stuff. What was the same for them was that Jesus was the same for them. Jesus was Lord to all of them. And he was the supreme love of their lives. And what needs to happen for us is that we've got so many other loves, right? We've got so many things that, that we love more than Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why we have problems in churches. It's because we've got our pet doctrine or we've got our preference or we've got our, you fill in the blank with all the different stuff and we get so passionate about those things that we forget Christ is supreme. And we make other things rule our lives. Other things dictate our decisions. Other things determine our life course. And unusually, you can put all kinds of stuff in that gap. You can put your pet doctrine. You can put your musical preferences. You can put money. You can put your career. You can put all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, what many of us do is we put ourselves on the throne of our lives. And we want what we want. Since when does it matter whether you like something? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Like, who cares whether you like... Like, who said that we were taking opinion polls in the church? Who, who decided that? You know what that's been taught through? Consumerism. The customer's always right. And we view ourselves as customers and consumers to come and to... Not to be a part of a body of people where Christ is supreme and we want to magnify and glorify him, but where my needs are met and my things happen. But the Christian life is a crucified life. Think about what the scriptures say. Paul says, that the Philippians, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, so he gave up that right. Jesus did. And our attitude should be the same as his. He said he took the form of a servant, the image of a human, 
And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's who we're trying to demonstrate, and we're worried about our things. And just before that, the Apostle Paul had said this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and then the other thing that unifies them, being one in spirit and purpose. That's what unifies, having the same love. It was A.W. Tozer who once said this quote. You can chew on this for a little while. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? It says they're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to one another, or but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Then he talks about worshipers. So 100 united worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive closer, for a closer fellowship. So the answer of unity in the church and racial reconciliation and worship war reconciliation and all the other kind of reconciliations that need to take place is not like, let's hang out together, tell me about the kind of food you like, let's eat some of that together, here's some curry, okay, here's some beans and rice, and all right, now we're going to have some tacos, and now we're going to, oh wow, am I allowed to say that stuff? That we're actually different, but we can have incredible unity with one another? And here's the answer, it's not kumbaya and hugging one another. It's a supreme love for Jesus Christ and a supreme focus on the mission that he's placed us on. We're united in heart and in mind and in soul. Now, where do you get mission from? Well, look at this passage. It's, it's crazy. There's a verse in here that seems like it doesn't even fit. If you read this passage and just kind of go through verses 32 to 37, I won't do all of them again because we've done that. But it says in verse 32, a community verse. It's how they cared for one another and how they lived with one another. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Then verse 33 talks about evangelism. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace is upon them all. Then verse 34, and by the way, back to how they cared for one another, uh, there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses, they sold them, and it's how they cared for one another. And so you got verse 32 is a verse on community. Verse 34 is a verse on community. And then you got verse 33 in the middle there. It's jammed in there. Like, why is there an evangelism verse in here? That doesn't even make sense. Like, what are you even, Luke, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you even talking about this? And if you think for a moment that community is for the sake of community, then it doesn't make sense that this verse is here. If you think the point of us being unified is so that we love each other well and have good friendships and build one another up and become more holy and sharpen one, all those things are great. But the ultimate purpose, Jesus told us when he prayed that prayer. Back to John chapter 17. Let me read that one more time. John chapter 17, verse 20, says he's praying for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe. So he's praying for us. Verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father. That we'd be unified like the Trinity's unified. That's supernatural unity. Just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world, here's why, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Community is for the sake of the mission, the mission worldwide evangelization and discipleship. There are people who still don't know and there are people that have heard that still don't get it. That's the mission. And that unified these believers together. That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that they'd be one in love and in purpose. It's one in mission. I don't know if you've ever been on mission with people that are diverse before. Maybe at work, you come into a boardroom and you might have people that you don't even like that are there. But all of a sudden, you've got a task, a goal, 
And it supersedes your differences. You go above that. You're beyond those things. Or if you've played on a sports team before, uh, I, I feel like it's been a great example in my life of, of people being brought together for a common purpose, a common mission. I remember in high school playing football. In my high school, we were a very diverse high school. We had people rich, poor. We had kids who were so wealthy, their parents bought them a sports car when they turned 16. And we had kids that were so poor, they struggled to buy cleats when it was time to play uh, for the season. And we had intelligence. We had kids that were all A's. We had kids that struggled uh, to be eligible to play on the team. Uh, racial, I mean, black, white, Asian, mixes of all that. I mean, there's all kinds of people there that were part of the team. And then we played this silly game <laughs> where you try to, on Friday night, have the scoreboard that you have more points on your side than the other side. But what God did with that, it, it changed stuff. Like in the cafeteria at school, there was like, you know, the yuppie kids and the rock and roll kids and then the cool kids and the not cool kids and this, you know, whatever demographic, whatever racial diversity that took place, all divided up, different tables at our school, but not on the football field. It was interesting because th- these are guys that you had a common mission with. And not only that, the common experiences. So these are guys that I get up with five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. We do two days you know, do down ups until you throw up. It's kind of <laughs> the game of two days. Uh, push a sled until you can barely stand up, get in fights with one another, like literally punching, like fighting with one another, wrestling for what sake, that we become a better team, and ultimately the scoreboard would be different on Friday nights. I remember one time being in the huddle um, at a scrimmage. It was just before the season was going to start. We are scrimmaging a um, group of guys from a, a different part of town, and uh, we came back to the huddle, and the running back on our team was in tears. Okay, if you never played football, there's no crying at football, Okay. You're injured. You stay down. Okay, don't, don't go back in there crying. So we're all like looking at this guy like, why, why are you crying? And he starts to get like kind of hyped up and he starts to tell us that in the pile something happened. Now in the pile stuff happens. If you played football, you know what I'm talking about? Stuff happens, no one sees. Stuff gets said, cheap shots, all kinds of stuff happens in the pile. And uh, in the pile, he got tackled. It's like two or three yard play. It's not a big deal. And, but somebody gave him a racial slur. And he started to tell us that in the huddle. We're supposed to be talking about the play, right? And the next play we're going to run, who's going to do what, and how's it going to happen. He starts to tell us this. I don't remember ever talking about the play in that huddle. But I remember that 11 guys of different races and different backgrounds, different belief systems, different all kinds of stuff, we just wanted to destroy those other guys. Not because we had this, but that's, he's one of our guys. There was a unity there. And what you saw on our team was, you know, game days we had to wear ties. Some guys couldn't afford a tie. So other kids let them borrow a shirt and tie. The A kids, uh, they helped mentor and teach and tutor the guys that struggled to stay eligible. Why? Because they were, be- not because they were, because be- we're a team and we got a common mission. Now, <laughs> that was for a silly game on Friday nights. Believers, let me remind you of our mission. It has eternal consequences. There are people that are going to hell. And we can get in arguments about whether we think it exists. Well, the scripture talks about it, it does. And so, regardless of what you believe, it doesn't even really matter. There are people that are going to die and spend eternity separated from God in constant torment. See, a football game, when the score is done on Friday night, no one cares. The next week, maybe no one cares. Certainly the next season, no one cares. This impacts eternity and impacts real people's lives. And the scripture tells us that, that people know enough about God to be at odds with him because we've seen creation and we've chosen sin. And so everybody needs to know about Jesus Christ. And you think, well, yeah, we've got to get some, give some money. You send it to the missionaries, you know? I saw a statistic that in Raleigh-Durham, only 12% of people will be in gospel-preaching churches this Sunday. Say that's like wrong. Say that it's 20%. Okay, 80%, 8 out of 10 people you come into contact with need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to argue about like music styles. 
or whatever little thing that's like our thing. We're going to argue about translations of the Bible. We're going to argue about whether, whether we're supposed to tell them or somebody else's job to tell them. <laughs> what? Like, how dumb is that? How distracted are we? We've got a mission here that has eternal consequences. And we're supposed to be revealing through divine unity God's glory to those very people. And so i just ask you before I move on to the next point. Have you ever been a source of disunity? Repent. Speak bad about another church in our town that's a gospel preaching church? Repent. Go to that church, apologize to that church. I'm not, don't, you don't have to come to us. I don't have like an agenda. There's not a, a disunity issue. Uh, this is the text we came to. There's not a disunity issue I'm trying to be passive about and address from the pulpit that I should be going to an individual person about. Um, but if you call it disunity, repent. You've got another believer that you're not in right relationship with and you haven't done everything in your power and ability to be at peace with that believer. You need to go to, I don't care if they're in another state, I don't know, email, what it is. This is serious stuff. The scripture talks about it here. These people, they were unified in heart and in mind and love and in mission. And not only did they have supernatural unity, but they also had supernatural generosity. That's the next thing we see all throughout this passage. The new life is characterized by supernatural generosity. It says all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. They had a biblical perspective on their stuff. And it was for the sake of the mission. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them, not just the apostles, them all. And there were no needy persons among them. That's how generous they were with one another. For from time to time, here's how it happened. Those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need, based on needs. All the needs were met. You think about the needs that would have existed at this time. Remember how this church started. Back in Acts chapter 2, we were talking about all the different people, the Persians and Elamites and all these different people. They come together. Uh, they came to town thinking that they were going to be there for about a week. They came for a festival, and they were going to celebrate. And so just, you know, some of you had people in town last week for Easter or whatever, and uh, they got saved. Their lives were transformed, and so they didn't want to go back. They decided to stay. They didn't have anywhere to live. They didn't have a job. They had about a week's worth of provisions. And so it was on the other 120 believers that were there to start taking care of them. So imagine, you know, some of you had in-laws in town, so this can be your imagination right now. Some of you had friends in town. Some people, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I had people from different states say to me this idea, uh, you know, we want this in our city. You know, this is how church should be done. I've gotten a couple of those kinds of statements to me. Can you imagine instead they go, I'm not leaving. They're with you now. I mean, if I invited them, they're with me too, but you think about who it was. And now you've got to find a place for them to live. Maybe you don't have enough space for them to live. And so what they would do is they'd sell their house and we'll all have less. And not that everybody has the same. The text doesn't say everybody has the same. The text doesn't say anybody was commanded to do this. This was all voluntary. It wasn't some kind of communism. It wasn't socialism. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was all voluntary. But as they felt from time to time, it said they would do so regularly, continually, as a need arose, the believer would pray about it. And then the wealthy ones, the wealthier ones, so the middle class and the wealthier people, the ones that would own land and would own houses. And what we know from that time was that was less than 20%. At a high number, would be about 17% of the population owned lands, owned houses, owned those kinds of things. And so those people would then, the people who had more would give so that the people who had less had their needs met. They still didn't all have the same, but it was generosity. So this is an addition to like their normal giving, like their tithes and, and their offerings they would give, the almsgiving, but they were, this was in addition to this, they were then sacrificing from their security, from their asset, not just from their income. This is from like their retirement plan. This is from their security plan, which would be their homes and their lands and those things. They were generous givers. And so then we have to ask ourselves, does that characterize us today? Well, you can ask yourself, 
the question, but I'll tell you, when you look at statistics for the American church, the answer is definitely no. Statistics will say that one in five Christians gives zero dollars. That's 20%. 20% of Christians give zero dollars to their church, to any parachurch, to any non-religious charity. Is that made up stats? I mean, you look at the income tax returns, they know. So who claims to be a born-again Christian? What do their income taxes say? Zero dollars, 20%. That's not generosity. Like if we're trying to figure out, is that how much becomes generosity? That's not. That's not that one, okay? And, and the scripture talks about tithing, and people debate about that. And, you know, should, does the, do I have to tithe? If you're even having that conversation, you're losing, okay? The tithe was before the law, and so people say that it was just because of the law, and you see it after the law. And so the tithe is basically a general, like that's the base level of giving, and then you get above and beyond that, we talk about generosity. We can't even do that as an American church. We're not even close to the base, like not even close to obedience, much less going above and beyond. If you look at the other 80% of Christians, uh, the average is somewhere between 2 and 3% of their income that they give. Between their church, parachurch, non-religious charities, all together, you compile all together and try to add everything up that you can, it's about 2.8, 2 2.9%. So somewhere between 2 and 3% is the average. And so we're not generous, we're greedy. So what's the answer? Well, I think it's real interesting that nowhere in the history of the church to this point have we seen any kind of seminars on giving. They don't talk about tithing. It's not about some stewardship principle. They didn't have a Dave Ramsey, okay? They didn't have Crown Financial, Financial Peace. We've got more resources on telling us information than anyone's ever had. They didn't have any of that. Paul and, or Peter and John don't seem to be going door to door to the wealthy people. Hey, uh, by the way, if you could just give a little bit extra, we've got this issue we want to deal with. Since the Holy Spirit was prompting their hearts, what we have here is not a, a cognitive issue, it's not an understanding issue, it's a heart issue. What needs to happen is not a change of our thought process. Now, some of you might be new believers. You might not realize God owns everything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns you. Nothing is yours. Okay? Every once in a while, you bump into somebody who's like, I worked really hard. <laughs> who gave you the gifts? Who gave you the ability? Who gave you the breath? Who put you in a country where you could have the opportunity? Who gave you the motivation? It's all God's. It's not a teaching on that. It's a heart issue for us. And, and so what's the remedy What's interesting is what you see when you go through the scriptures is when you see people who get generosity, you continually see grace. There are people who grasp grace. Grace is the antidote to greed. It's when you realize, what I mean by grace is when you realize what you've been given, that he became poor, God, okay? Talk about who owns everything. He became poor, he put on flesh, came here, lived in humanity, and died and paid for our sins so that you and I could become rich. Rich in forgiveness, Rich in grace, rich in new life, rich in things that can't be taken from you, and then to be hindered by things that are, are so easily gone. How sad for us. It's the people that understand grace. You see the example here in this passage, verses 36 and 37, it talks about Barnabas. Here's Barnabas, this guy, he sells a field, and he's the positive example. Next week we'll talk about a different example, but he's the positive example. He sold a field, he only brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet so that the needs could be met in the community. And what do we know about Barnabas? Well, you continue to read through the scriptures and you see he's kind of introduced here in just these couple verses in Acts and then you see him as like a hero in the book of Acts. And what you see is when you continue to look at him is he's a man of grace. Next time we see him, a big story that takes place is there's a guy that's dramatically converted in Acts chapter nine and he wants to be a part of the church. But this very church is saying, uh-uh, not that guy. Like we know his reputation. We know what he's like. And it's Barnabas that then comes in and says, no, 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 you need to bring this guy in too. This is a guy who they thought he, that he was going to try and kill him. It was a scam. They didn't believe him. And he said, no, his conversion is legitimate. It's Paul. It's the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. 
And Barnabas is the guy who introduces them into the church, and they go on Barnabas's credit. There's a man who understands grace. Acts chapter 11, they hear about a church in another part of the world where God's working, and they're trying to figure out if it's legitimate. These are Greeks. Like, they're trying to figure out if the Greeks could really know Jesus. And so they send Barnabas and says, and when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. It's because he's a man who understands grace. And you continue to go through the scriptures, and as you see people that get grace, they're generous. You see Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Climbs up in a tree, wants to see. Like, all, like It's kind of a rap song for back in the day. But anyway, uh, Zacchaeus is this guy. He steals money from people. That's his job. He's a tax collector, one of the most hated people in the world at this time. I mean, like somebody who raised money for Al-Qaeda. And so that's what they would view a tax collector as. And so he raises money for terrorists. And uh, Jesus says, see Zacchaeus up in the tree, says, I want to come hang out with you. And you see what happens is when they're at Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus realizes, even though I do all this stuff, even though I fund people who kill people so they can have power, even though I steal money from people that are working really hard to make this money, you want to be with me? And he stands up in the middle of the meal. He says, I give half my possessions to the poor. You go, why, why didn't he give all of them? Well, because he needed to keep some back for the next thing he says. He says, if I've cheated anyone, see, so cheat a lot of people. He said, I'll pay him back four times. You don't think there was a long line at his house the next day? But what happened was a man who understood grace then became generous. You see another story in John chapter 12. What happens in John chapter 12 is interesting. There's a woman who's anointing Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. Her name's Mary, and she understands grace. It's an extravagant gift. It's a lavish gift. It'd be the equivalent of us uh, giving a gift that was an entire year's salary. And so he's do- she's doing this, and then there's one of the guys, one of Jesus' disciples, who says, no, that shouldn't happen. She should have sold that, given the money to the poor. And you can look at that. If you don't know all the commentary on this, you could go, that, he's discerning. I mean, really, you should help the poor. Jesus, he's, you know, he doesn't need all that perfume and kind of wasteful. Jesus says, no, no, no. Listen, dude. I mean, Judas. He says, listen, um, you're greedy. That's your problem. What she's doing is right. John gives us a little commentary. He says, Judas was saying this because uh, he likes to help himself from the money from the offerings. Who's the one guy who didn't get grace amongst the disciples? Didn't realize what was being given, what was being offered to him. It was Judas. The primary, the example above all examples in the scripture of generosity is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the reason why it's such an incredible example is because the people weren't giving anything out of excess. These were incredibly poor people. In fact, who they were giving to had more money. They're giving to people in the church of Jerusalem, this church, and they're giving out of their poverty. And so for them to give doesn't mean like, hey, I got two coats, I'm going to give my extra one, pull some stuff out of the attic, honey, grab the stuff out of the garage. No, it's like, if I, don't, if I give, I'm not going to have a coat. And whatever, if I give money that's going to pay for food, I'm not going to eat. It's the Macedonian believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says this, and notice the words grace and generosity. And now, brothers, and this is Paul challenging the Corinthians to be generous. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And here's the grace. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, not solicited, not manipulated. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. They wanted to do this. They're looking for opportunities. People get grace. They're looking for opportunities to do this. You have to be told. You have to be forced. You have to be manipulated. Why? Because they get grace. You jump down a little bit in that chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says... But just as you excel, he's telling the Corinthian believers, in everything else, faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, um, and your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. It gets to the motive why here in a minute. 
I'm not or commanding you, uh, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing you with the earnestness of others. And then here's the point. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, do you realize what you've been given? I shouldn't even have to plead with you to give. And so you see is that when people get it, then they become generous. I was reading a story this week. A uh, pastor in uh, Buenos Aires was telling the story. Juan Ortiz is his name. You Google it or look it up. And uh, he was telling the story about how when their churches in Buenos Aires uh, really started to teach their people about discipleship, they became extravagant givers. And the church didn't know what to do about it because they weren't trying to raise money. They were just trying to teach people about discipleship. And what happened was the people from the churches started coming and bringing the deeds to their house, to their apartments, to their cars. Like they're giving the titles of their cars, like bringing all their stuff to the church. And it was more money than the church knew what to do with. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And the, and, the, and the pastors and leaders in these churches started getting together and talking about what are we supposed to do with this? For six months they prayed about it. And they came back to the church and they said, we're giving back all the property, like all the deeds to houses and cars and all that stuff. We're giving all that stuff back. And then the pastors then told their churches, but they still belong to the Lord. We just believe the Lord's revealed to us, he doesn't want an empty house. He wants you living in it, stewarding it. He doesn't want an empty car. He wants you driving it. He wants you using it, but it's his. And what Ortiz says is, though, when like, somebody comes in from out of town, they don't even have to ask people whether they'll let them stay at their house. It's like they're looking for opportunities to get people. that They're just thankful they get to be in their house because they realize the Lord owns it. Because they understand grace. Can you imagine what it would be like if we lived like that in America, considering all that we have? And the poorest among us is rich compared to the rest of the world. Can you even imagine what radical generosity would look like for us? But do we get grace? Do we understand what's been given to us? And today we're going to do something a little bit different. You look at this text and you'll see there's not a command in here. Okay, this, this text doesn't tell us there's anything we have to do. It's just an example of what they did. But what a great example to us. One of the things we're going to do uh, today is that we're going to have some envelopes down here. The worship team's going to come in just a moment. You guys can come up now if you want. Um, and they're going to sing a song. We're going to have some envelopes down here. We're not going to try and manipulate you or make anybody do this. What we want to do is we believe the Scripture says to spur one another on to good deeds. It's one of the things that the, the Scriptures say that we're supposed to do when we gather together as a body. We've got in these envelopes um, ideas of ways that you could be generous this week. Let me tell you something. None of them say you have to sell your house. Right? Right, Chad? None of them say they have to sell their house. None of them say you have to sell your house. None of them say you have to give your car away. None of them say anything like that. There's nothing that's here that's trying to be manipulative. In fact, none of these you'll find say anything about giving anything to, to this church. Um, but what you'll find is things like, and I know what some of the ideas are, and I'll tell you, when, when I grab my envelope, I'm hoping that I get certain ones and not certain other ones, but uh, they say things like this. Uh, when you're in Starbucks this week, buy coffee for the person behind you. And I don't buy coffee, so I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to go there to buy milk, and then what am I going to do? I say something to the I don't even know how that works. So you're a barista, right? I've heard about this, and I don't know the language. Can you just translate? Like, I don't know. So I, there's other ones that I'd hope that I'd get. You've got other things in there. There'll be things that um, will say stuff like, uh, go on a prayer walk through your neighborhood, pray for your neighbors, pray specifically for make two or three of the neighbors by name that you know, and write them a note. So I prayed for you this week. If there's ever anything I can pray for you about, let me know. Some of them are time, some of them are money, some of them are service. Go down to Raleigh Rescue Mission, volunteer two hours, hand out a meal. Things like that. Each envelope has, I believe, three different ideas on it. You don't have to do any of them. Like, I know some of your personalities are like, I have to do all three of these now because they're all three right here. Pick one. You can't do all any of the three? Do something different. Here's the idea that we're trying to convey. Think about the needs around you. Think about creative ways where you could be generous. 
And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray for us. If the Lord leads you to, no, again, not force, not commanding you to do this. The Lord leads you to, come down here, grab one of these envelopes, take it back, take it back to your seat, hang on to it, don't open it yet. Some of that's going to be tough, right? Like Christmas Day stuff, right? Um, but hang on to it, and I'll come up, I'll pray for us. I'm just going to pray that God uses the envelope in our life to speak to us, change us, and that he might use it in the lives of people in our community. But uh, let's pray, and then we'll stand and sing together. Let me pray. Father, uh, I just come before you. I pray that you would make us a church of supernatural unity. Uh, I pray that our community, not just Southbridge, but the triangle, even our unity, with uh, whether it's Providence or uh, Christ Baptist or whether it's uh, Church of the Apostles, whether it's whatever churches in our city, Journey Church, that preach the gospel, that we'd be unified with those churches, with those believers too, as we're on the same mission. And have a common Lord, which is your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would... Uh, convict any hearts that need to be convicted, change any hearts that need to be changed. I pray for supernatural generosity. Uh, I pray that this week, hundreds of people in our community at least would be looking around for opportunities to meet needs to impact people. And I pray you might use these envelopes, these things that are stated in there as something to spur us on in that process. And Father, I pray that you do a work in each one of our hearts. If anyone here is greedy, God, that you'd convict and change for their sake and for your glory. And Father God, we love you. We thank you that we get to be part of a a church family. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.